Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Noreen, how was your week? It's been pretty steady. I haven't had any major relapses. I'm feeling a bit dizzy from time to time, but it's been pretty steady. I'm averaging about between 15 and 20,000 steps a day, which I haven't done. That for... is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's just the sunshine and I'm because I'm away from home, but I'm managing to stay on the go all day Yeah, and not and not be completely worn out. My legs are sore, which they haven't been for seven, eight months since I got sick because I haven't been doing any exercise. And so that's like a really great feeling. I'm really yeah. happy about that. It, this disease is intermittent, so I have this anxiety that it's, um, it's going to come to an end, probably when I head back to the UK. But for now, I'm just enjoying it. Good. How was your week? Um, I mean, I think I kind of jinxed it. Maybe we should stop doing this when I'm <laughs> having a good week because it's like, yeah, I'm feeling good. I've had a, uh, I've had a massive crash. I've had a really bad week. So... Yeah, it was a bit of a shock because I thought that I had been steadily improving slightly. And I think that that maybe is a longer distance between the big crashes. But it was it was rubbish. I've spent half the week in bed, uh, you know, just absolutely exhausted. I'm looking forward to the kids going back to school so that I can go back to some daytime napping <laughs> <laughs> without like shirking responsibilities. Uh, it was really interesting because we talked to Darren Brown this week about the difference between fatigue. Yeah, and tiredness. Having had that conversation, it's really, really been in my mind. And I, those days where you're just like, I can't, I can't move. I can't physically do this. The fatigue. Yeah. Darren Brown is an HIV and oncology physio who has had long COVID since March 2020. Darren created this organisation. It's a kind of a peer-to-peer -peer support group for physios who've actually got long COVID, not only helping themselves try and recover, but they're implementing that in, in their work because um, Darren, for example, is still very active in, in the NHS and has managed to get back to work. And he, I mean, it was a bit of a success story because he said he's been able to work now for five months um, continuously without any relapses. So basically two, two of your worlds have collided. Your professional Massively. and your private uh in a way yeah and actually very much so in the work that I'm now doing as well because as a clinician I've not only uh met people living with long covid because I have also worked in a long covid clinic now as a person living with long covid I've also started doing research on long covid um and I'm also living with long covid um so there's been many collisions that have happened but yeah absolutely um there's been a real mix of my clinical, academic and lived worlds. So people who listen to the show would know that Emily and I have very different symptoms and I'm always keen to find out what people's symptoms are. So could you tell us what, you, what symptoms you were suffering from? My long COVID symptoms were primarily 
Um, fatigue, although I do prefer the term exhaustion, because I think in the English language, I think fatigue doesn't really do justice to the severity of the symptom. I also had post-exertional symptom exacerbation, also known as post-exertional malaise, uh, which is, again, a symptom that I had zero knowledge of before living with it and really was uh, quite a roller coaster to understand. With that, I also had problems with brain fog cognitive dysfunction, um, which affected my ability in terms of short-term memory processing um, and at my most disabled reading um, and therefore screen time. I've also had issues with pain. Um, I've also had uh, urological problems. I've had strange tachycardias. I've got an exercise intolerance and I've also had issues with my lungs. Um, which has actually been the only thing that has been objectively found uh, on any medical investigations, uh, which is that I was found to have uh, a reversible obstructive lung disease. So I now use inhalers to manage that, uh, which managed my last symptom, which was my chest pain. So a lot of the things that you've mentioned are to do with, and so many of the long COVID sufferers have this, where we'll try and do something and then that's it. And if you're a physio... This is a real question, right? So how do we rehabilitate ourselves when doing anything physical puts us on our back? Yeah, and this is where, <clears throat> for me, the understanding of what rehabilitation is, is critical. Because I think that there's been potentially this narrative that has been discussed that rehabilitation equals exercise. And that's not true. Rehabilitation is about health and functioning in everyday life. And rehabilitation is not just a single professional. It's not just physiotherapists. There are many different rehabilitation professionals, including physiotherapists, occupational therapists, speech and language therapists. There are doctors that specialize in it, nurses as well. So it's about how do we address the challenges that people face in their day-to-day -day life with functioning. And those challenges can also be termed as disability. So that can include things like um, self-management, adaptations, equipment, and also interventions such as exercise. So exercise is a string to the bow of rehabilitation. It's not the only thing, but it tends to be the thing that a lot of people focus on in terms of rehabilitation and also what's been very widely discussed in the field of long COVID as a legacy as well from obviously ME and CFS. So I think as a healthcare professional that specializes in rehabilitation, I was obviously very keen on utilizing my rehabilitation skills to manage my own symptoms and my own impairments of daily living. Um, however, I, one of those that I tried was exercise and I learned that pretty quickly that it didn't work. Uh, and what happened when you exercised and, and how soon did you notice that it was actually uh, setting you back or causing worse symptoms? I had acute coronavirus in March 2020, felt like I'd recovered pretty quickly. In fact, I returned back to work full time after 10 days. Um, and then after that, I was working full time for six months. Um, and I was able, and I was part of the first waves response uh, in the NHS. So I was, you know, redeployed to intensive care and the like. Um, and during that time, I still had symptoms of fatigue. I had some kind of strange discoordination, tripping up the stairs and the shortness of breath and chest tightness. And so I just thought I'll rehab myself out of it. And for six months, I was doing my own version of a rehabilitation program of exercise. And it wasn't until six months later, I crashed. Um, but when I reflect back on that, um, I was having these really big peaks and troughs. Um, so I, what I was actually having was post-exertional symptom exacerbation. 
I didn't know it. I didn't understand it. And so therefore I didn't recognize it. And what I was trying to do was push through, which is why my crash was so hard in September of last year, where I ended up being off work for two months. I couldn't work full time for nearly six months. Um, and at my worst, I was bed bound for a week. So and I think that is not that uncommon. That's similar, I think, to to me because I had it at the same time as you. And the fact that there wasn't anything termed long COVID and people didn't actually know that there were any longer term implications of the virus. When I was on holiday last summer, I had no idea what was going on with my body. And every time I was trying to do things and, and I was feeling so exhausted and my moods were horrendous. Mm. But I didn't realise at the time what was causing it. Yeah. Um, so hopefully people contracting it a little bit later, if we get the sort of word out about long COVID, do you think that people could potentially avoid such a huge crash from using the knowledge of not exerting yourself in, in those early days? I think the knowledge is obviously powerful and the hope is that that can be the case and that sharing and disseminating and utilizing skills of like knowledge translation to get the message out um, can help people avoid the experiences that we had. But I think we've all met people that have never even heard of long COVID and this message isn't necessarily getting out. And also, I think the other thing to bear in mind with this is that most people that have had this experience of long COVID, our vast majority are of young working age groups of people that have had been very high functioning and have suddenly dropped off the edge of a cliff in terms of their experience of uh, disability. And so most people are trying to recover quickly because they just want to get back to their lives. And so I think there's also that challenge of the permission to rest, to pace, to balance activities and rest, which a lot of us, especially in Western societies, don't give ourselves that chance to do. Um, but equally so, there's commitments that people have, which is also really challenging. There's childcare commitments, family commitments, work commitments, financial commitments as well. And so... There's a lot to play here. Um, so actually, this is where the information about symptoms, um, recognition of those symptoms and pacing is going to be really, really important, but also about being uh, compassionate to those people that haven't heard the message and also supporting them. You know, we spoke to Dr. Paul Glynn a few weeks ago, and he laid out five or six, six now, barriers to recovery, where he talks about sleep hygiene, anxiety, exertion. And I just think if... GPs could give this advice to anyone who had COVID in the first place, even a mild case of COVID. It's a viral disease that really affects your body. We don't know how, and you could develop post-COVID syndrome. One way to try and mitigate that is to try and avoid these five barriers of recovery. And we both said, Emily and I, that every GP should have this and be able to give it to everyone that they know that's got COVID because it's, it's such a benefit. But there's just this shambolic kind of response, I think, in some ways to long COVID in the country. Uh, yeah, I think that if we was to have a, I agree, I think obviously there are some ways. So we know that some of the emerging evidence is demonstrating that uh, people that don't get the opportunity to rest and recover and try to push through or don't get given the opportunity to not have to push through uh, in the early phases often end up with long COVID and have longer periods of disability. The, there's a sort of particular demographic of 30 yep. to 50 year old mothers that that have contracted long COVID. I mean, there, there might be other factors as well. But one of the reasons is they are the demographic that a, a lot of them cannot have a break because you can't you can't explain it to kids. 
Agreed. And I think that also is mirrored in terms of other demographic groups like teachers and healthcare workers uh, that also don't get a break. Um, so I think that, yeah, it's, it's really that the patterns are there, aren't they? Any ideas of, of how we how what we should all be doing to get the uh, that sort of front line, the GPs, um, some kind of cohesive messaging on this? Have you got thoughts on what we should be doing? Yeah, I really do think that actually this pandemic has shone a light on the value of rehabilitation. Um, Because if we think about kind of um, what's been portrayed in the news around the role of rehabilitation of those people who've been acutely unwell, the three key asks of long COVID communities of research recognition, and um, we know that rehabilitation is key and fundamental and vital. And I think that actually, if we had a greater understanding of what rehabilitation is and we also understood that it is not just exercise and always progressing it can be about symptom control and management it can be about self-management it can be about functioning in day-to-day life which can also include stabilization of symptoms i think we would possibly have a better ability uh, for frontline healthcare workers including in primary care uh, to be able to deliver messages that aren't simple just go out and do a bit of exercise. Um, because I think, unfortunately, it's very simple to say those things. Um, and and the, the damage that actually it can do is quite remarkable. And, and the flip side of that as well, don't do any exercise, just stop completely. Um, it's got to be uh, a, t- a tailored, individually tailored approach, I guess. Absolutely. And I think that's why the provision of the long COVID services in England, I know that's that's a challenge in itself, that is multi-professional in its origin. So it has a medic, it has a clinical psychologist, it has a physiotherapist and an occupational therapist. That's what's funded by NHS England. That provides the opportunity for multi-professional, multi-dimensional and also individualised person-centred care uh, that meets the person with the clinicians uh, to ensure that the right treatment is provided at the right time. Um, because as we, 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 us three all here, we all live different lives and we all have different commitments. And what are bespoke rehabilitation programs in terms of our pacing, which is that balance between rest and activities is going to be completely different. And so I think actually we, we need to, we need to think carefully about how the messages can be delivered so that they can be targeted to get the key messages out, which is recognizing those symptoms. And I really like the message of stop, rest and pace, because I think it, it's, it's a really sn- uh, snappy uh, title, isn't it? And, and I think people understand it. I think people get it, you know? Um, but I think that it's the onward referral to the services, being able to access those services so that people can get the individualized care that they need and be supported through the challenges. Because I don't know about you, but I found pacing really quite difficult. And I have worked in clinical practice for many, many years. And I've worked with people living with HIV and cancer for the last decade and utilized pacing as as a rehabilitation strategy. But actually doing it was slightly different living with an energy limiting healthcare condition like long COVID. Talk to us about pacing. Just... Uh, sure. because it's a quite a, a sort of abstract term or, or people could apply yeah. it however they they see fit what what do you mean by pacing yeah so there there are some academic definitions there are some more community-driven definitions for me pacing is simply a term which is balancing those periods of rest and the activities that we do in day-to-day life and when I say activities they can be physical they can be cognitive 
they can be emotional, and they can be social. So balancing those activities and rest so that we can remain within what's sometimes termed our energy envelope is really important. There are two different types of pacing, and sometimes this can be seen as contentious to describe them, but I think it's important that we are clear that there are different types of pacing that sometimes used by rehab professionals. So there's one type of pacing, which is often used mostly by physiotherapists, actually, within the context of like pain management programs, which is called quota contingent pacing. This is you've got a certain amount of activities to do in the day. You try to not go over that threshold so that you don't push beyond your boundaries and, for example, get a certain type of pain or move beyond a certain type of energy level. The type of pacing that's actually much more effective in energy limiting health conditions like ME or long COVID is what's called symptom contingent pacing, which is that there's much more flexibility in what you do in your day dependent on your symptoms. And this is really vital for people that might have post-exertional symptom exacerbation because by the very nature of it, it can be delayed. You can do an activity and the onset of your symptoms that you have as a, as a, uh, a consequence of that can be immediate, can be the next day or be even the day after, and they can last for longer. So having symptom contingent pacing, where you balance the rest and activities dependent on the presentation of your symptoms, and you don't try to push through beyond that maybe changing level of what your balance is or your threshold is, means that you can have greater control over time. Um, it's not easy because it means the goalposts move quite regularly. Um, and especially if your trajectory is that of maybe improving or maybe it's very episodic in nature or maybe it's worsening. So the goalposts are shifting. But for me, to summarize, pacing is the balance between activities and rest. And I think it needs to be uh, specifically targeted around how our symptoms are at that time. And we shouldn't be trying to push beyond what our body is telling us we're able to do within our symptoms at that time. I think that's a great explanation because actually for me, I wouldn't, I, the pacing, I would have literally attributed to rest and physical activity that you, you consider to be, you know, exercise or walking. I wouldn't necessarily have put in those others into the pacing. Yeah, and I think it's really important we do recognise that activities are more than just physical activities um, because, you know, us sitting here now having this conversation is using energy. This consumes quite a lot of energy living with long COVID and you can feel like, you know, the brain fog coming on. And for me, I know that when I had a, a, my moments of more profound disability, I really struggled using the phone or being on Zoom. Um, I really struggled. Yeah. So, it, you know, energy is used in different ways. Um, and that's not just physical movements. It's also cognitive. It's emotional. Um, it's also social being around people. I was quite excited to get to get you on because I thought, you know, I'm going to speak to Darren. He's going to tell me, go for a 10 minute walk in the mornings and you'll feel brighter or, you know, lift a few weights or, <laughs> have, a nap or have a nap, you know, just in the very basic lay, you know, lay layman's term that we, you know, that we think about physiotherapists. Um, but COVID is such an inconsistent disease that the treatment is obviously going to be inconsistent in terms of how you treat each individual. So every person coming into to the long COVID clinic is going to get a different set of regime from you. But is there anything that you've seen since you've been dealing with long COVID patients that you can say is the one thing that seems to help everyone? For me, the majority of the encounters I've had amongst people living with long COVID has actually been through peer support encounters. So 
what I'm overwhelmingly hearing is that actually effective and successful pacing is the most, uh, well, it's the most effective thing to do in terms of managing symptoms, because there's been a bit of an argument about how potentially some people are conflating this whole topic of graded exercise therapy with pacing. They are not the same thing. Symptom contingent pacing is that you balance your rest and activities, and that obviously changes over time, and you might have a time where you can do more. That's not graded exercise therapy. Graded exercise therapy is where at fixed increments, you increase the amount of activities that you are doing, irrespective of your symptoms, and you are encouraged to push through. Over time, I think that that has morphed and it's moving more towards pacing. But let's be very clear. The origins of that is not the same as what true pacing is and pacing is effective. I think that, as you rightly said, long COVID is an umbrella term. It's a catch-all for a very heterogeneous group of people. And with that has benefits and also some challenges. But, you know, what we do know is that Every single person living with long COVID presents with clusters of symptoms. They can be wide, varied and different in their multidimensional nature. And so therefore, clearly, everybody's going to need a different bespoke approach to their care um, and the support that they receive. And I think for me and my background of working in HIV, it's it's us- that's usual practice for me. Um, I'm used to dealing with people or working with people, should I say, um, that have a wide range of different issues in their day to day life um, and with their health. And so finding a bespoke rehab plan is not unusual for me. And I think for many healthcare professionals that are used to dealing with conditions like, for example, things like cancer and that framework was actually really quite instrumental to my understanding of my lived experience of long COVID, which is that it was multidimensional. There was more than one symptom in more than one part of my body. And it wasn't really making a lot of sense, but it seemed to be something that was systemic happening in my body. Um, it was um, it was episodic in its nature. It kept coming and going and changing. Um, and also it was really quite unpredictable. Um, which made it really quite difficult. So in the early phases of my experience of living with long COVID, I found that some of the knowledge of episodic disability really helped me in terms of my acceptance, but also in terms of my optimism in the hope that things would get better. And I've been one of those lucky people that have had uh, a good recovery very slowly over time. It's so great to speak to you because you're one of the very few people I've actually spoken to who've had long COVID, who've made a full recovery. I wouldn't say I've had a full recovery. I'm definitely symptom... Uh, I thought you said you'd recovered. Yeah, well, I'm really closely there. I've been saying for a little while I'm about 85% recovered. And I can say that because I work full-time and I have done now for months. What I can't do is I still can't exercise because I know that it sets me back. It's like it's... There's something in my body that's still not letting me do that because every time I've tried to exercise, my symptoms all come back. So I can be really physically active, like I obviously use a wearable. And in the space of 48 hours of just commuting to and from work and doing my daily job, I walk 22 kilometers in two days. So I'm not inactive, but 
I'm able to tolerate that at the moment. And I, you know, work from home one day a week, which is part of the agreed management program for me as well. Um, I do my clinics virtually from home. Um, so I'm really close to being recovered. But I, what I would always say is that I'm, I don't believe that I'm naive enough to know that I'm cured or it's gone because I think that it's so unpredictable. And I think there's probably going to be periods where I might have episodes again. And you never know, there may be relapses. You haven't had relapses, phases where you've had to dip out of work? No, for the last five months, I haven't. No, I've been able to work full time. Um, And actually, I've just got back off a little bit of annual leave. Uh, I had a a week away with my partner and we travelled Suffolk and Norfolk and we both did everything we wanted to do. And I wasn't limited by my symptoms, which was amazing. Uh, And really quite remarkable. And what I really learned was the difference between the terms tiredness, fatigue and post-exertional symptom exacerbation. So pretty much since the beginning of having COVID in March 2020, I've had fatigue and it's been really diverse in how the fatigue has been. You know, there's been early on, there were like periods where it was like 24 hours of just complete exhaustion and then it would go away. There was periods where it was like bumbling away in the background and then it would increase and get worse. And But this kind of feeling of fatigue was kind of like, ever present it was just always there in the background and sometimes it'd be better or worse but more recently it's gone and on my holiday I felt tired I was driving we were out and we were doing stuff but I felt tired and not fatigued it didn't feel the same and I was able to kind of really understand it from a lived experience and so I am sure there are much more clever people than me that can conceptualize it differently but like for me being tired was I've done a certain level of activity and I'm tired and I'm expected to be tired because I've just driven for the last four hours. I'm, I'm expecting that to cause me tiredness, but it's not going to, it's not going to be a problem because it was easily alleviated by rest or by sleep. That for me is feeling tired. And I think most people understand that sensation of tired. They do a lot of activity they do a lot of work. They've had a busy week. They feel a bit tired, but with a bit of rest, it goes away. For me, the difference between tiredness and fatigue is that fatigue is like someone has genuinely pulled the plug on you. And no matter what you do, that level of energy is not coming back. And rest and sleep doesn't seem to be helping. And it's just there. It's like the the battery is not recharging. And so for me, that was quite an interesting difference between the symptom of fatigue and what people describe as tiredness. And actually, it was only on my holiday I felt it for the first time. And I think what's really interesting is also the symptom of post-exertional symptom exacerbation or malaise is also a different construct, which is that after you exert yourself, there can either be an immediate or a delayed flare-up of of a whole range of different symptoms. And so that is something that I experienced a lot early on in the beginning, but I don't currently experience because I've got a real good hat on my pacing. Um, I know how much activities I can do. And as time's going on, that is getting more and more and more uh, without setting me back. We've, uh, we've always spoken about this. Uh, do you, do you think that it's going to stay in our systems, your system forever? Do you think that, have you heard of people who really, really are there at 100% and and don't seem to be having any backward steps? Do you think that's possible? I don't know that I have met anyone that is back to their pre-morbid 
level of health and function that have been living with long COVID, particularly like the first waivers. Um, I think there are people that had, you know, um, maybe some, a few weeks of longer term symptoms that then got better. But I think those that have had like months of symptoms, I haven't met anyone that's 100% back to normal. Uh, I feel like I'm one of the few that is really close to there. Um, Like if I could exercise, I'd be there. When do you think you might try again to exercise? Oh, do you know what? This is the thing. It's a scary thought, right? Well, do you know what? I'm not even scared of exercise. That's the thing. Like as a physio, it's kind of like our bread and butter. It's like it's like a stick of rock. You cut us down the middle and exercise is part of everything that we do. And it's part of our life. It's a part of our profession. We're indoctrinated into it. <laughs> so like it's it's not something I'm afraid of, but I'm just so used to every time that I've tried it, I've had a setback. So I've been kind of waiting for benchmarks of like, not having symptoms when I've done more activities. And recently my holiday was one of those examples. And I'm thinking, no, can I try it? Can I do some small amounts? I've also started to really kind of try to conceptualize what's important to me because I am physically active. I can do things. Um, And I know exercise is important and I'm not gonna say it's not, but also so is stability in my health. And right now, that's a priority for me. And so I'm going to continue being physically active. I'm going to continue moving and I'm going to continue doing all the things that are meaningful to me. And when I've got that sustained stability for a bit longer, I might reintroduce some exercise, but it'll be real low level and see how it goes. Um, You know, I used to be a real fan of yoga, so I'd like to get back into that and I haven't done that for a while. So um, yeah, I think I could do with some better flexibility. Tell us a little about your organisation, Long COVID Physio. So Long COVID Physio is uh, an international peer support, um, education and advocacy patient-led association of physiotherapists living with Long COVID and our allies. So we formed in November last year, so we're still quite a baby association. Um, But um, we, we wanted to share some stories. And so actually what we did is we decided to share our own stories amongst ourselves. And we just made a bit of a a, a quick and uh, spit and sawdust podcast. And what was really nice is it was really specific kind of to our world of rehabilitation. We're all physios mostly, Um, you know, there's a few OTs and there's some other people like dietitians and speech and language therapists and also recently music therapists as well that have been on. Um, But, you know, those of us that are living with long COVID that are physios, you know, a lot of us are really physically active people. And so actually that conversation of that struggle um, with not being able to be physically active in terms of how we might manage our mental health, manage our physical health, um, our identities, our hobbies has actually been really resonating with quite a few people. Um, but I, I've, I've been really proud of what we've achieved. I won't lie. And I'm really pleased that um, it's it's been able to reach so many people um, and, around the world. And do you think that um, amongst the, the, the physios that you've spoken to is the proportion in physios along with other healthcare workers of people who have long COVID? Is it much higher than in other demographics? I know that the data is demonstrating that healthcare professionals have been disproportionately affected by long COVID. And there's been some fantastic work in terms of providing peer support within the NHS, um, particularly by some of the DARSI fellows uh, that have been setting up peer support groups. And um, in the very early beginning stages of that, I joined a couple of those um, in terms of facilitating. And it was quite remarkable how many healthcare professionals were affected um, and living with, with long COVID and really struggling 
in terms of their ability to cope um, and function in day-to-day life. Do you think the NHS has been good with, with those who have had the lingering symptoms of it? I think that, unfortunately, there have been many people that have had some bad experiences. Um, but I think that's not unique to the NHS. There's There's been bad experiences with all employers, I think. And actually, there's been some people that have had great experiences. Um, I've been lucky. I've been really well supported by my line manager, um, by my department. Um, I've, I've not personally had a bad experience. Um, I think there's always wiggle room for improvement. Um, but I have heard some um, some really really quite horrifying stories of how people have been have been treated and how they're not being prov- I think I think the issue for me is that some people a lot of people just want to get back to work and want to be able to function in their identifying role as a healthcare professional. And because they're not being provided with the adequate rest or support in the early phases, it's made it really difficult later on. Um, But there are some people that have been provided lots of support and lots of rest, and unfortunately have still not been able to recover. So I think it's really diverse. And I think, you know, this is where we start to look at kind of disability rights. And I think one of the big issues that I've learned is, you know, uh, phased return to works. Um, I find it really quite remarkable that the standard phased return to work is four weeks. Um, and I don't quite know how anyone living with a chronic health condition can just suddenly get better in four weeks and return back to full time work. You know, after you've had chemotherapy for cancer, like how do you just get back to work in four weeks? Like it's no wonder so many people leave their jobs. Um, so I do think that, you know, personalized, extended, flexible phase return to work should be something that should be looked at because actually we want to people want to work and people want to retain people in work. Um but I think that it's quite difficult to provide that flexibility in terms of service delivery and demands. And that's where actually we need to look at disability rights. And we stand on the shoulders of giants in terms of disability rights over the decades. Um, But I think there's still more that we can do with that. And I think looking at episodic disabilities like long COVID that are also unpredictable in their nature and how it is affecting so many millions of people around the world. Like if we took a, a bit of a guesstimate, you know, there's, we're looking at over 20 million people worldwide estimated to be living with long COVID. We have a really good opportunity here to use this as an impetus for change in terms of some further progression in terms of disability rights in, in relation to employment and labour force participation. Are, are you out there banging the drum um, in your advocacy groups or in, in the... Are, are, are you trying to instigate sh- policy change? I know that you've been involved in a lot of different groups and various studies yeah. and you've been, a lot of people have come to you for advice. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've, I, I, I certainly can say that I've got my fingers in many pies at the moment. <laughs> um, but I know that certainly in terms of the work that we're doing in long COVID physio, you know, I think our advocacy is quite far reaching and hopefully impactful. And I know many of our group are certainly collaborating with some of the other groups as well. So, for example, like the employment subgroup of long COVID support, uh, members of our long COVID physio group are at that table and doing that work with them. Um, So I think it's actually how... um, us as an association of long COVID physio can collaborate with others and bring our lived knowledge and experience of being allied health professionals and rehabilitation professionals to this discussion and dialogue. But I think certainly the the way that I've recognised that I'm potentially able to be as most impactful as possible 
is actually now looking at that academic route um, and actually getting things published because what we're noticing is that policy is being driven by research and so therefore we need to make sure that there is greater involvement and meaningful participation of people living with and affected by long COVID in all of the responses to this pandemic's research so that we can make sure that the right research is coming out that actually has a meaningful impact on people's lives. It's amazing, isn't it? Noreen and I, the the uh, the people that we've spoken to, the the patient power in this is like something that has never been seen before. Well, it's really interesting because obviously my background is HIV. That's where my clinical work is. And if we look at kind of where um, patient and public involvement in research came from, that came from HIV activism. And so actually there's so much that we can learn um, from patient activists of past. Um, and I think certainly the, the activism in HIV and AIDS is something that is a really powerful lesson that can be translated to other healthcare conditions. And, you know, I think that what we're seeing here in long COVID um, is actually mirroring some of that powerful patient participation and co-production of research agendas, research, policy, practice, um, responses. And I think that actually patients have been really powerful in their voices this time round and very early on in this pandemic. And as we've seen with the naming of long COVID, you know, Patients are not backing down on this. A lot of us are very clear long COVID may be a preferable term. And this is international now. And we're seeing organisations respond to that in different ways. That's a great, I think, note to leave on. People power. People power. That's the way to go. People power. I love that. I think there was a lot to learn there in terms of just managing how how we can uh, each manage our our energy levels at large, rather than it it, it just being about how much exercise you do. It's... It was a real education because I always put physio in the bracket of physical training, like a way to get better through physical exercise. And Darren clearly told us that that wasn't the case. Applying it to your everyday life rather than specifically about exercise. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.